You're listening to a February 2016 podcast from the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice at McKinsey & Company. I'm Dennis Swinford, editor. Managers at most companies understand that it's important to reallocate resources from unproductive investments into more productive ones, but in practice, last year's budget is often the best predictor of next year's. In this podcast, McKinsey's Yuval Otsman and Werner Rem examine how managers can overcome some of the obstacles that get in the way of more nimble reallocation. Here's Werner. Yuval, thanks for being on for for the conversation today. We we, we thought we would talk a little bit about our thinking on resource reallocation and and not necessarily about the importance and the impact because we know from a decade of research that when companies reallocate money or people, they typically tend to do better than those who don't, but more about sort of the how to do it and how to think about it given that I think one survey that you've done sort of showed that the actual decision-making process is actually what, what, what holds companies up in order to reallocate quickly. One of the things that surprised me still from many companies is most executives that you ask, they will tell you that resource reallocation is, especially CEO-level um, people, is one of their biggest areas of responsibility. That's how you drive uh, value creation. And generally, the budget process or the three-year, five-year plan is how they think they're mostly doing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that doesn't always cascade down to actual resource reallocation. Of course, some big moves do happen. If you decide to do a big M&A, if you are, you know, developing a new business strategy, typically, even if it's organic, typically those moves will be somewhat carried out. But actual optimization between areas of the business that are declining versus areas that are growing, areas that you've demonstrated repeated strength and competitive advantage where, you know, whereas in other areas you might have fallen behind, mm-hmm. are, you know, getting very little um, change in allocation. I mean, we've seen a correlation of above 90%, you know, almost 95% when it comes to SG&A um, investment between last year and the next year. In most businesses. So by that, by that you mean sort of last year's budget is the best forecast for next year's budget. Yeah. Right now, yeah. in, in most businesses. And there, there are a few reasons why companies don't act, despite the fact that they understand it's important. I think, you know, one is there's a, you know, variety of biases um, that make people feel like, you know, the principle is true, but it doesn't apply to them. Okay. So they're confident that regardless of what they did in the past they will do better in the future. If you just give me a bit more investment, you know, it's going to be another few years, but then I'll, I'll give you fantastic returns. I can see how that's a problem in good performing companies, right? I'm doing well. I have a good return over, right? I can see how they're saying, well, just leave me alone kind of thing, right? It works well. I know what I'm doing. But you're saying also in, in, in sort of not so good performing companies, it's still sticky. It's still the hope that in two or three years it's getting better. I think it's very sticky. I mean, and, and frankly, what's interesting is if the company has an ambition mm-hmm. to grow at 10% a year, every business unit is going to try to grow at 10% a year or more. Right. Few of them know that they're so much beyond that they will continue because they've, if they've grown 20% last year, they're not going to go down to 10%. But many businesses that have been declining will show up with a plan on how to start growing at 10%, organic or inorganic. Right. Uh, but people try to calibrate themselves to what the company is doing to be above average performers, and everyone wants to be above average. And by the way, it's often more compared to their internal performance 
competitors might be doing great or might even right. be falling because of market problems, and they will still have a lot of kind of can-do attitude and wishful thinking. So, so that leads sort of to the first complex which we started to talk about, the granularity of performance or the granularity of value creation coming from, I think a decade and a half ago, the granularity of growth, right, and, and the fact that when, when you double-click into any kind of business unit and you, and you look at, you know, what, you know, cells underneath that, you know, there might be some that grow 15%, but they really should grow 30, and, and others, you know, are going to be struggling to grow 5 so is that an issue now? I mean, one would think that you can at least start to have a conversation about how a company, how these different cells perform, and you should be able to compare it with an outside market. I think most companies that we see or we talk to have made massive improvements in terms of level of granularity in which they get reports, sometimes perhaps even too granular to a point where you know it's not material enough. So I think granularity by itself has been taken much more seriously than the past. But as I mentioned earlier, still a lot of the time, people are not really facing the facts in terms of different opportunity, different <laughs> performance and competitive strength across different segments. Is that just an unwillingness to engage on that level because it's simpler to just cut it all across the board? Or? I think it's, it's two interesting things that are not necessarily related, but the first one, as you kind of were mentioning the business units, in many companies, if I have four business units, and let's just say simplistically 20 important segments in each one of them, uh, often performance is going to be reported to shareholders, reported to the board even, discussed in some management meeting at the BU level, Aggregate level rather yeah. than the segment level. And it might be that out of those, let's say, 80 segments, just simplistically, there are seven segments that make massive difference right. and they're split between the four, but they make a significant difference in the average of one versus the other, and you can get the wrong conclusion summarizing at the BU level. Some of the resource allocation happens at the BU level, but not at the gotcha. level below. Okay. Uh, and again, you run into the problem of everyone trying to defend their job at the next level. And sure. so, so I think which is the second issue, because there's always reasons when it comes to take resource out, there's always reason why you shouldn't. And some of it is reasonable. They start from, but I'm contributing more profit still for the business. If you take resources away from me, you may not deliver your quarterly results next mm -hmm. quarter. Mm -hmm. And I know that China might be more important in three years, but right now you need me. Right. And you cannot take resources away from me. And there's some truth to that. Then there is the other version of that is I know that I'm not contributing as well as another segment, but I've just done this turnaround, I have a new strategy, I hired two new guys, I'm coming up with this new product innovation. It's, it's, next, it's always next year that I'm going to make the breakthrough. So a lot of the segment leaders, you know, people that own more individual P&L, are at the end of the day quite siloed and quite optimistic. Mm -hmm. So they fight quite hard to defend mm -hmm. resources. Even it's obvious that some segments should get more than others. The, the other part that some of my clients are struggling with is sort of this idea of what a resource is and that to sort of a dollar is a dollar, but then it's not, right? If you ignore taxes for a second, if I spend a dollar in my sales force or a dollar in my R&D and that business unit over there really needs a dollar in CapEx or a dollar in M&A, 
So it's sort of kind of be equal in a sense that it's an investment, but the reality is we treat P&L dollars very different than balance sheet dollars, and M&A is typically a completely separate process. In this. And how do you treat that off, I guess, like roughly 80 units? That you yeah, have? I mean, the math is funky. Yeah. And then you have asymmetry of expertise in most companies right. that some people understand the math better than others and right. use it to their purpose in some cases. So you're right. I think people do struggle with actually measuring on a comparative basis both what the inputs as well as what the outputs. Right. So the corporate like. finance person needs to ask, like, can you do models for 80 businesses every, whatever, half year or something like this? So how, do you, how, do you, how does that actually work? I think some companies do it. So, you know, it's possible, um, but you need to be careful. One, from false precision, yeah. that you get to a very detailed model, a very accurate number, but there's some big uncertainty and risk and assumptions, and it varies by some, you know, timing variables. or so, And so, some are playing the numbers because they know yeah. if I tweak this a little bit, it looks better. Yeah, because even, you know, NPV is terminal value, as we all know, right. and how much of it is in the terminal value versus how much of it is actually coming in the next five years and how much of it is dependent on something that has not happened yet versus it's a continuation of what already exists. I mean, right. very often quickly starts to be apples and oranges. And there are a variety of ways we can talk about that people use as metrics. They have a way of quantifying, but they use it to have a discussion, mm -hmm. to challenge the assumption, to understand the differences, to facilitate the decision-making in a way that ultimately does feed in into a long-term financial model for the business, so, but, but it's not, you know, it's not a looking for a pure single metric that right. will tell you the answer. Yeah, I think we agree with this, right, that, that it, one metric never works because if, even if you take a return on capital, it's a one-period thing. It doesn't say anything about the future or the marginal dollar, for that matter, which, which I guess brings me to that. How do you, how do you in that discussion, find out what is over and under resource? Because in the end, you've got to find money somewhere to put it somewhere else, right? It's, uh, it's a bit of a zero-sum game if I have committed a, a, a budget or a target to the capital markets. So I think there's a version that I've seen, um, and some people that believe that if you almost, you know, you know, wisdom of the crowd type, you get people to vote on which businesses have more upside, less upside. So here, you get the Management in a, in a well, room. it can be it can be more of a if you take away people's interest mm -hmm. side, which is quite difficult to do in sure. an organization, and you ask them what are the growth opportunities or where can we generate more value versus what's probably absorbing value. The the obvious outliers are known to most people, mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's sometimes not a bad place to start from identifying the extremes okay. of, of things that. Makes that sense are clearly not being supported enough or are legacy businesses that continue to get well, a lot of support. Well, clearly could do a lot better if you give them more. Or could do, a, or could do better. I mean, there, as you started to allude to, one of the areas that is more challenging, and there is no answer to it other than a discussion through business plans, and is how do I decide what's the tipping point for which an additional investment starts to make a competitive advantage that starts to translate yes. superior returns. Because the relationship between returns and resources are, is often not linear. Yeah. If I'm a, you know, a company which is as a brand, it takes quite a long time to invest enough and build enough 
of a brand presence that starts to be a virtuous cycle. Right. But once I get to that point, just a little bit of additional investments to maintain it can get, you know, can generate significant return. Right. And often, you know, for example, if you have a share of voice of 25%, you don't get much more benefit than a share of voice of 35%, but dramatically more than 10. Right. right. So it's a step function in many cases, not only in things that we tend to think about, which is like building factories, but capacity, but also just in marketing. And So when you talk about this and in some of the presentations, we sort of say there's this granular data need, right? Then there is a need for a metric or probably several that are linked to value generation. So it's not EPS, it's whatever it is, economic profit and so on. What you what you get to now is this idea of how do I debias that discussion, which is sort of that third element. You said you said peers, maybe you even take the names away from the data, right? That's one thing that that we've done in training. So we just sort of said, what would you do in this case? And we didn't even say what the business units were, right? Which is quite eye opening. What are other sort of techniques that you that help make that debate not emotional but factual? I think in order to have at the bias process, first of all, you need to recognize that biases are there. Okay. So in a way, yeah. you need to be saying as a management team, you know, we know you each have your interests. It's human. It's, you, know, you need to support it to a degree rather than pretend like you guys are better or we are better, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's where the granularity and the metrics and some form of uh, objective enough, and sometimes we create multiple scenarios to provoke some debate um, is important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, responding to some numbers. So it's not enough to just ask people what they think is, you know, over-resourced and under-resourced, but at least putting in front of people some numbers, which they may disagree with in debate, uh, but helps to, you know, uh, support a, a different discussion. Mm -hmm. And as you said, sometimes you could even hide the businesses um, mm -hmm. which they belong to and just look at the financial data. Of course, there's only so much you can do with that because once you expose which they are, the management would still tell you, yes, but you didn't consider the new product, you no, didn't exactly. consider the change of regulation, you didn't consider something else. And then I think some of the best debiasing techniques in addition to that that we have seen are, you know, one, this idea of, pre-mortem or kind of the blue team, red team, the ability to actually debate and try to put people in different shoes than what they really are. Imagine that you switch the roles between the use. So a, for, a fourth devil's advocate type of a thing. A fourth devil advocate or you sort of reverse roles. And you probably don't do it for everything, but you do it for the ones that are, you know, more controversial. So once I've sorted out the extremes, I focus on the ones. I think there are going to be few that generate more debate. And by the way, probably our bigger strategic risk or strategic move mm -hmm. for you. The other thing that we often get asked, and I think work to a degree, is one of the challenges to go beyond the BU level is that people will say to their corporate center, CFO, CEO, head of strategy, corporate strategy, you don't understand enough right. our business. So what I've seen some CEOs and CSOs, CFOs that are very dedicated to this process, they will say, you know what, why don't we sit in on BU-level segment reviews? It's unrealistic to pitch all the segments against all the segments, but we'll sit in and you'll suggest your BU resource allocation. We'll listen to that. We'll understand your consideration. Then we'll aggregate this across BUs, 
mm-hmm. and we'll still be able to make some of our own judgment on segment level versus other segment levels in different BUs. The other thing that people use, which is quite creative and difficult, but you know works, is they actually take, it's not all the way to zero-based budgeting, yeah. but they take resources away mm-hmm. from, so rather than you assume that my starting point is last three resources and I just have to ask for a bit more, especially for operating expense, you know, they give only a minimum back and then people have to justify yeah, getting more, getting, getting some of the same resources and more rather than the other way around. And that feeds businesses that are more project-like than right. it feeds ongoing, you know, consumer-facing yeah, businesses I've seen and that, so on. I've seen but that in businesses with, with sort of a little bit of cyclical investment. So you have, you know, large medical devices you put in $50 million in the next platform, and then for five years you don't. And then they have to justify when they want to do the next one, right? That type yeah. of thing. I can see that. It occurs to me that you probably can sort businesses, these 80 businesses, let's stick with that example, into different categories, right? So there might be some that are struggling, and there are others that are clear winners, as we talked about earlier, right? Is there a way to categorize those? Yeah, so one of the approaches we did with, with uh, uh, recently with a large company First of all, we agreed on the right segmentation, which, by the way, is an important decision. Right. So we segmented the business, and then we created uh, the management at a business case, and we did our own kind of challenge business case, looking at how they did in the past, looking at where the market is going, mm-hmm. and we punished businesses that have done poorly in the last few years. We said, we don't believe you'll just do better. So okay. we created you know, a bit of an alternative scenario, and we started a debate based on those two scenarios, which businesses, you know, in that case, we use some form of return on resources. So, you know, how much value they're creating relative to how much resource they're absorbing. And we said, here are the areas where we think you are over-resourcing, and here are the areas we think you are under-resourcing. For the areas that you're over-resourcing, we started to ask, what will happen if we half the resources, if you decrease right. it might be significant enough, 25%. Radical. Yeah, we yeah. said, what will happen to those businesses? Will the return actually right. improve or not? You know, will you be all of a sudden losing more money? And to some degree, if we felt that the business is clearly bad, but we actually don't think we can scale it down, we made it a candidate for divestment. Okay. We said, we're probably not the right owner. And we did look at, is the problem us? Competitively, or is the problem the market? That, that's what I was, to a certain extent, getting. Part of that decision is it's a sort of a, a, a bad business in a bad market, or we are not the best owner right now, or we could be the best owner in a good market, but we're just on man. So there are several sort of outcomes of so that. You're thing. right. I, I probably, I mean, I, I simplified a little bit, but that's exactly what we yeah. did. Okay. We ask, first of all, if it's the market and we are doing poorly, then the next question was can we improve it? Or we're just such a competitive disadvantage because of a variety of reasons, our ownership, our IP, our scale, that we just cannot turn it around, but someone else might make a much better owner for this. Then an even more obvious candidate for divestment. Right. If the market is doing bad and you know, we're actually better than the market, then it started to create other questions of is there still something, you know, it still might be worth more for us Maybe the solution is not to divest it. Or how long can it outperform or maybe, yeah. And we also looked at, is it important for our brand? Is there there enterprise benefits that we don't 
which again alludes to keep it, but try to be more efficient in how you manage it. So we had a variety of, if you'd like, options for what we want to do with so over-resourced. And then we also looked at areas which we thought look to be under-resourced. So at the moment, we're getting, we're putting very little money and getting good results out of them. And really, the first question you want to ask when you see that, is it really that I double my resource or you know, quadruple my resource, I quadruple my return? Right. You know, or whatever is the step change, can I actually afford, can I scale that business and continue to maintain the same level of returns? And some businesses you could, some businesses you couldn't, More which true. again was, you know, started our decision tree to understand, you know, is this really where we want right. to put more resources or not? So I clearly that varies by businesses that you are in, but this cannot be a one-time piece, right? Sort of the fourth pillar is to sort of do it again and again. So how do you bring this more in the corporate calendar or in the corporate mindset that you do it on an ongoing basis? So you're absolutely right. In many ways, we still say that strategy, you know, is about making irreversible, you know, choices, you know, ahead of time. Because that's a choice. Uh, and it's tough to replicate and therefore nobody... We're under can uncertainty, right? Uh, having said that, you continue to make decisions as you go. So even if you might have made a few decisions that are unreversible, you could still wait with some decisions for a little bit longer until you get more data. You can still reverse a decision at a loss that is better than maintaining it just because you made it. And I know each of those things, you know, are worth looking at. I mean, interestingly, I think as of, I guess, the biggest story over the last 18 months for many companies have been the oil prices going down very radically. But the interesting thing is for some businesses, this was a dramatic impact on their business plan. So taking a drilling company that I know of that does deep water drilling, the cost that sure. they have, unfortunately, at the moment is above the yeah. the price of uh, you know each barrel, and they had an order to buy more uh, rigs for drilling, uh, in, with an option to cancel. Um, but they had a business plan, and their argument was yes, right now it doesn't make any sense, but it will be fine in two years. So they didn't even go and change, and they actually processed the new rig for a billion or $2 billion mm-hmm. investment. And this is while their stock price was declining. And so they have then presumably a pretty robust discussion about the assumptions underlying, underlying this. In that specific case, it's not that they didn't understand the economic impact, but in that case, it was the classic, you convince yourself about the decision that you know the world would act the way you want because you want it to be right. that way. Right. So there's no doubt in their mind that what we're experiencing, therefore, is not a new environment of oil prices. What we're experiencing is a down cycle in which the obvious strategy is actually to invest more because then you're going to consolidate your position when things get better. And that's not a crazy argument if you can afford it, but it was they, you know, just assumed that by 2016 we'll see the oil price just starts to reverse, which, of but, course, we have not seen so far. No, no, I mean, that's a great example because you also see the other side with airlines trying to figure out what that means for them and so on. But but it's a bit of an extreme example, isn't it, right? I mean, the oil price going from wherever it was in the it's triple digits, right? right? And so that obviously leads to discussions all the way to the board level. I guess what I'm getting at, I mean, so for, for instance, 
um, one of our colleagues told me, well, if you want to reallocate resources, the first step is you need to know how many resources you reallocate. So what companies should do in the first three months of the year, they should check who has too much, then they know how much they can redistribute, right? Another technique, another, somebody said, well, you always hold back some of your budget, of your R&D budget, and then mid-year there's another decision. Now, I, I'm not sure any of these are perfect, but it occurs to me that even in the ongoing business, there's new information that comes in that could lead to reallocation during the year. And I guess I'm struggling a bit. The corporate calendar yeah. is such a Bible, right? Spring we do strategic planning, and fall we do operating planning, and then we sort of do it again and again, and it's a massive effort. How do you yeah. make that more agile? So I think what I was trying to illustrate with this point, I know it's an extreme example, you're right, is just to say inertia for not only your past investment, also new investment that you decided to make, People don't like to revisit things if right. they can avoid it. <laughs> yeah. And they will just find reasons to justify their previous decisions even when it's obviously not valid anymore. So in order to overcome that, you need to have a fairly rigorous monitoring of assumptions. And you need to have, in my mind, a quarterly review. That doesn't mean that the entire management needs to look at every single thing, mm. but at least you need to have defined threshold for certain assumptions where you mm-hmm. have to come and, and bring it back for discussion, you you need to, and some of it is can be processed into a dashboard of mm-hmm. analytical. A little bit like the at. old portfolio of initiatives idea that you have, you know, 10, 15 important things that you have to review on a constant basis because they are critical for short-term and long-term success. Right. Exactly. Just like in the way that you manage PMO of a transformation plan, mm-hmm. that you would want to know that the milestones are being met every three months or sometimes every week in some companies. I mean, that might be too much for following your resource allocation yeah. or strategy. So maybe not one week, but three months. You want to understand that the assumptions you made are also moving things that are out of your control as well as in your control. If you deliver the product, the quality that you said you will, that you assumed will now help you in your market share increase. Have you seen the regulatory change mm-hmm. or have you seen no other negative regulatory change that was underlying an assumption about entering a new market Mm -hmm. or investing in a new area. The realities change around you all the time. You cannot manage a zillion, you know, endless assumptions, but there are often a few Mm -hmm. underlying your predictions for the segment or the business Mm -hmm. that based on which you've decided to put more money in that you want to revisit on a fairly regular basis. Well, with that, thanks very much for the time. Thanks for having me in your office here today. Um, I'm looking forward to working on this with you.